With real estate becoming more complex and buyers wanting to be more savvy, there has been an onslaught of new buyers advocates getting into the action. Some are amazing, backed by years of experience and training as an advocate. Some have been working in the industry as a selling agent or other type of real estate experience, and others are just jumping on the bandwagon thinking they can get some easy cash. Today, we are going to find out how you can be savvy when you appoint a buyer's advocate. You're listening to Real Estate Right. Top experts talk about how to buy, sell, rent, and invest right. Your host is Sue Langder. Research is a big part of our copywriter's job, and at Real Copyright, we pride ourselves on how we research to ensure we paint an emotive picture of why buyers should see your property. If you want copy that pulls at the heartstrings, give us a call on 5977-8889 or go to realcopyright.com.au to find out more. Miriam Sankula, the CEO and founder of Property Mavens, is a multi-award winning buyer's agent and vendor advocate with franchised offices in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Miriam is the best-selling author of Property Prosperity and is an accredited property investment advisor. She is recognised in the real estate industry as both an innovator and thought leader, regularly asked to speak at seminars. Welcome, Miriam. How are you today? I'm really great, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. You're more than welcome. Um, So great to have you back here in 2023. Now, recently you did a blog about fake buyer's advocates. What frustrations in the big bad world of real estate were you finding that encouraged you to write this blog? Yeah, so in recent years, there's been an influx or a flood of inexperienced people coming into the industry. They've never worked in the industry before. They've come in from being a teacher or an Uber driver or, I don't know, an engineer, and they've all decided that I want to be a buyer's agent. That looks like an easy gig. I can do it part-time. I can do it as a side gig while I'm, you know, still got my full-time job and I don't even have to let my employer know. And they've quite frankly got no genuine understanding of what's required in the role. Um, and they're a danger to themselves and consumers because they've not been trained, they've not served an apprenticeship, they don't have the emotional intelligence or the skill set, um, and they're quite frankly bringing this side of the industry into disrepute. In saying that, what qualifications do you need to have as a buyer's advocate as a bare minimum? So it does vary from state to state, but at a minimum everyone needs to be an agent's representative. Uh, So ideally you've gone through some sort of real estate licensing and that's the first step to ultimately becoming a licensed agent. And you can't actually go out and operate your own business anywhere in the country without being fully licensed. So, um, you know, if they haven't served an apprenticeship either in a, a selling agent and then been mentored by... Um, colleagues or a director to understand the the sales process and how do contracts work, how to communicate with vendors, how to communicate with buyers, how does negotiation work, etc., then that's half of the industry that you don't know how it works. It's a little bit like saying, I want to be a lawyer and I'm going to work for the prosecution, but I'm not interested in knowing how the defence works. Yeah, so it's the same thing. So if suddenly you decide, hey, I want to be a buyer's agent, but I don't need to serve an apprenticeship in the industry, well then, automatically you're half as informed as what you should be 
which is dangerous. And the only other alternative to that is if you don't come from a real estate background and ideally sales, maybe property management, but again, property management doesn't have training in contracts and skills and all the rest of it. So that might be a bit of a stretch. But the other alternative is to be mentored by an established and experienced advocate where they train you on the job and they hold your hands and they oversee you because there's so much compliance and legal complexity involved in it that if you get any of that wrong, there are significant consequences. And the last thing any consumers want is to be dealing with a newbie in the industry or someone who's barely done six months worth of working for a competitor or something where they're suddenly coming out. They're overconfident. um, They're ill-prepared and they're a danger to themselves and consumers because they make mistakes and they're setting themselves up to be sued. So ideally you should have a buyer's advocate who has actually been trained as a buyer's advocate from the get-go. Um, yes, but there's not a lot of them, a lot of buyer's agents who employ in this sector because it's a still a relatively new industry. Um, certainly in New South Wales, there's a qualification, um, I think, where you need to, if you want to be a buyer's agent, there's a licence specific for that. I would recommend that people don't do any online courses on how to be an advocate because they're not accredited. They don't actually teach you how to be an advocate. They teach you how to market yourselves as one, but all that integral, important compliance and stuff that you need to know that's going to protect you, um, you don't get to court. So there's no way to bypass your apprenticeship in the industry without there being enormous risk that comes with it. But that's what people are naive to because they've never worked in the industry. They can easily be pitched and sold to and go, hey, you know, make money while um, learn how to invest in property while getting paid for it and using other people's money to do so. Um, You know, here's a part-time gig and you can earn easy money on a weekend. And because these people have never worked in the industry and don't understand it's a six day a week job and you know you might start at seven in the morning or finish at nine at night they get suckered into paying eight grand for some bs course that doesn't actually teach them how to be an advocate and it's really about selling courses it's not about putting quality advocates out there so tricky because there's so many uh industries out there that are getting these little micro jobs out there which are very niche and very very specific and they need to be expert roles and we're dealing with a lot of money to a lot of people and uh yeah it's something that shouldn't be just washed over should it no and you know it's certainly I think the industry needs to be looked into in this respect because the way buyer advocacy is being marketed is very much a spruiking going on. So like spruikers would flog developments and say, hey, this is an amazing property, you'll make all this money. Anyone who's spruiking and flogging courses saying, hey, you can be a buyer's agent and make all this money, you know, people are vulnerable. I mean, I know of one poor kid who was 17 uh, where he was subjected to high-pressure sales while he was finishing his HSC and he got pressured and conned and bullied into forking out $8,000 and being told he should start the training now so that when he finishes school, he can start his career. But the kid wasn't even 18. Now he's 18 and he can't even start his own business because he's only got an agent's rep certificate and he's got to work in the industry for a year to become licensed before that's even a possibility. But hey, the company got their money, woohoo, you know, so that's all they're into. Again, it's just churning people through the machine and, and making a bucket load of money flogging courses. Um, and it yeah, it's really sad. It's really sad to see people investing so much money only to then find out they've got to spend tens of thousands of dollars more once they've done the course with everything that they weren't told about in the beginning that before they parted with their money. 
um, and then most of them don't don't do anything with it because it's not unusual for organisations who flog courses. They know statistically that ninety percent of people won't do anything with whatever they've learned, but that they they still make money out of it. So it's all by beware. Okay, so now we've worked out how to, you know, work out if your buyer's advocate is qualified. Um, we're going to find out how we can spot a fake buyer's agent. Tell us, Miriam, what do you consider is a fake buyer's agent? Yeah, so again, rookies that have come in, they've bypassed their apprenticeship in the industry, they don't have on-the-job training or the necessary experience or skill set required. Um, A lack of practical experience means a lack of knowledge and insight, and that's vital to advise clients correctly. So when I talk about advocacy, you're closer to being a financial planner for property than you are a real estate agent. And the mistake a lot of selling agents make when they transition into advocacy is they think they know it all and they don't need to know anything else. They've never unlearned how to be a selling agent and the nature of the beast is they just want to churn and do deals. Whereas if they haven't unlearned to be a selling agent and then learned how to be an advocate, they can also just want to try and, you know, push clients into properties, have them overpay, do a deal, get it done. But it's not about that. It's about working consultatively. It's about working with the client emotionally. Um, It's about having the emotional intelligence to do that. It's about having the integrity to do that because the nature and psychological profile of a selling agent is different to an advocate and therein lies one of the challenges. Um, So, you know, it's a little bit like you wouldn't go and um, engage a heart surgeon who's never practiced before but they want to make you their guinea pig and, and, you know, you're risking your health and you wouldn't engage an electrician who's never had practical training to rewire your house so you don't want to be engaging one of these fake advocates so you want to make sure that they're independent they're not attached to a sales agency you know there's a trend at the moment for selling agents to open advocacy arms but a lot of them just have ex-property managers helping someone with what they think advocacy is but you know and doing the basic fundamentals but not actually fulfilling what the the role is or to the extent that it should be Um, you know, and you want to make sure that they've worked in the industry for an absolute minimum of two years. And as I said, they've been mentored or done an apprenticeship under an agent or under a um, a qualified and experienced, well-experienced advocate. You want to make sure that they've got their uh, state agent's licence and or their agent's rep certificate. Um, I'd be checking out their LinkedIn profile. Often these people have got LinkedIn profiles, but there's no picture on there. Uh, There's no history of any work that they've done. They often have their name and it's John B, which you can tell means that they've actually got a full-time job and this is their part-time hobby. But the reality is it needs to be a full-time profession if you're going to do it well. Um, And the scariest thing is that people are giving other consumers investor advice, but they don't have formal property investing qualifications. So unfortunately, real estate's the only industry, unlike say financial planning or banking, where You can seemingly do something once, you call yourself an expert, you convince everyone else that this is the best strategy, you've got no formal qualifications, you've got no concept of risk profiles, and yet you're telling someone how they should be spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. It's just frightening. It doesn't make sense, does it? It just, uh, yeah. Like I remember when I was uh, first working for Wood Arts in uh, Camberwell and um, met Kerry McGullick, who was the the CEO of Wood Arts at the time. And he said that when he went to get his license, he just went to Oakley Police Station and said, look, I want to be a licensed real estate agent. How can I go about it? And he said, oh, I think I'm going to form for that somewhere. And he dusted off uh, a pad of real estate licenses on the uh, top shelf of the of the office 
and uh, said, mate, what's your name? And write his name and your address and all that sort of stuff. And said, here, mate, here, mate here's your uh, real estate license. Yeah, it's amazing what used to happen years ago. But fortunately, a lot of the states have now cottoned on. They're lifting um, the requirements of people to come in and be qualified. Certainly when I got my license in WA, it was a diploma. I had to work in the industry for two years. I got interviewed by a panel to see if I was a person of good calibre to justify being licensed. It's a pity they don't do that here. (laughs) It'd clean out half the industry, I think, which may not be a bad thing. Um, And there's nothing wrong with having the best of the best in the industry um, or taking the sharks out of the industry where the highest value is money and they just want to churn deals and you know they're your best friend on Friday they sell your house on Saturday they walk past you in the street on Monday not knowing who you are and they're on to the next one so you know the nature of the industry does attract people like that but of course when they're out there with these courses pitching people about you can earn all this extra money then you're just going to attract that into advocacy and it's it's just really wrong Um, but the other thing is you know you want to Make sure that you're dealing with an advocate who thinks like an advocate, not a selling agent. They bid like an advocate, not a selling agent. Um, and if they can't demonstrate or explain it to you, then they're not an advocate. So ask the question and how do you bid like a buyer's agent? So asking the question, <laughs> what should a buyer's advocate be able to do for you? Well, when it comes to representing you at auction, you know, you have a conversation before the auction about where your budget limit is, you know, and you draw a line in the sand and at the end of the day, you've made a clear decision. You're not in an emotional state. You're not under pressure. You're not reactive. And you do that the day before the auction. You know, there's nothing worse watching someone at auction and, you know, sometimes at the block we see shows like the block we see examples of this where – Someone's reached their client's limit, but they're on the phone pestering them for more money, putting them under pressure, which is not the role of an advocate. That's what selling agents do. That's what auctioneers do. You as an advocate, when you reach your limit, that's it, done. You know, you're out. There's no calling the client and putting them under pressure at the last minute. Um, Anyone who does that behaves like a selling agent, and I'd be very wary about continuing to work with them. And, you know, obviously there needs to be some due diligence beforehand. So, like, essentially your buyer's advocate should be – putting you in a position to make that educated decision about that property and decide if it's worth you pursuing to auction or not. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just finding a house and it's got five bedrooms and, yeah, this looks good. You know, you need to be able to substantiate and provide evidence to support people making that decision. So it's a combination of, you know, different attributes of the property, doesn't meet the client's needs. And obviously these things are very different if they're an investor versus a home buyer. So they're a totally different approach. You know, obviously investors, you need the evidence um, and data to support and substantiate why you want to be buying that property in that location and this one specifically. Um, You need to be able to educate them around pricing. You know, where's a line in the sand that's reasonable without overpaying? You want to be able to represent and negotiate on their behalf. You want to give them guidance around what's a good property, what's a bad property, what's a high-performing property and what isn't. Um, And I think the difference between a good advocate and a bad buyer's agent is a good buyer's agent, it's the properties we don't buy that sets us apart from, uh, sets us apart from the clowns who will just buy anything at any price and move on. And these newbies that come in don't even know that they're buying shit property, but their client's going to find out well and truly. And all these newbies that came in that, who just totally relied in the last couple of years of buying properties off market, you know, hey, I buy 75% of what I do off market. It's like, yeah, but if you're buying 75%, you're buying shit or you're overpaying, Um, And now in a downturn, those clients who worked with those advocates will have significant, significant capital losses 
in the properties that they bought because they overpaid such a premium in the first place. So again, it's the integrity and the knowledge and the understanding of the advocate that differentiates a really good one from your average one. And there's a lot of really average and bad ones out there for the reasons I've described. Yeah, I always say that this kind of market where interest rates are going up, it's harder to sell property. It's basically sorts the weed out from the chaff in terms of good quality agent who knows how to read the market and how to work through all these obstacles that are happening um, versus the ones who are like in it for the quick buck. And Yeah, and, and it's really interesting because these newbies that are coming in have never worked in a down cycle. You know, they've started in a market that boomed. They thought the party was never going to end. They've got no idea what to do in a down cycle and they've got no idea what they've cost their clients. So they've never actually had a long-term approach. They've never had a, I want to make a lifetime career out of this. And this is why you never want to work with someone who's doing it as a part-time gig or a hobby because they have a job and a career. Why would you give thousands of dollars to someone potentially who does it as a side gig, who's not committed to a name, a profile, a reputation and looking after your interests for the long term. I mean, that's your biggest red flag to start with. People who do it on the side, and they may not even be honest about it. At least some of them are honest, but they do it on the side and you can't get them during business hours. They don't answer the phone because they've got a job. Um, you know, you find their website and it's only got an email address and a phone number, but never a name, never a picture, never a profile. So straight away when it's info at and then a mobile number and there's nothing about them, you know that they're a fake advocate, don't go near them. Um, but yeah, this is the problem now. Those of us that have been in the industry for decades, we know there are cycles and we know the implications of taking a short-term approach when you're buying property for clients and that's the biggest mistake. So you want to be working with advocates who've got a minimum seven to 10 years experience. Well, I even said to an agent uh, that I've worked with for probably 12 years now, I said to him, you've never seen an interest rate rise. And he's like, oh yeah, you're right. And even though he's had 12 years of real estate experience, he hasn't been put in a situation where he's had to deal with, you know, a completely different emotional state of their buyer, of their one, their buyers as well as their um, their vendors. Yeah, and that's another implication. You know, you you work through a few cycles and you get to understand all things that can potentially happen. And when you're working with clients, you've got that in the back of your mind on how to how to um, protect them. And that's why property selections in, integral to everything you know you can find an advocate where they charge a cheap price and it doesn't cost as much to engage them but the price you're going to pay and the bad asset they've bought for you is going to be significantly higher in cost than the bit of money that you've saved by working with someone who charges a lower fee you know and typical of what you're going to get in a selling agent where they're just tacking on buyer advocacy on the side because they all think well this is easy money we'll get into this gig um, or these newbies going out there with no idea. So definitely, as I said, you want them to be full-time. Um, you want to make sure on websites or LinkedIn or anything that you're seeing their name, their photo, years of real estate experience, case studies. Because um, at the end of the day, consumers are at very high risk of receiving inadequate service for the money that they pay and errors being made at their expense. Um, you, certainly these fake and rookie BAs have certainly been around since 2018 up until now. So check out when their websites were built. Um, often there's an about us section, which is sophisticated and convincing, but there's no detailed description of the business owner. There's no name, no photo, no actual real estate experience, or they talk about sales experience, but it's not 
real estate sales experience. Um, so that's a red flag. Avoid that at all costs. They use stupid KPIs to promote themselves. So I saw one guy's website and um, he only had three years real estate experience, but apparently he's inspected over 10,000 homes, <laughs> which was 64 a week, 52 weeks a year. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so again, a lack of practical experience and lack of knowledge and insight. Well, that's where people are going to come unstuck and, and consumers are going to pay. Um, and the other thing with these fakies, they're really good at using those statistics you know what I was talking about before 74% of all properties bought off market and average buy time at 32 days and a lot of that's the churn and burn stuff they'll buy inferior property they'll overpay but experienced and ethical operators don't have stats like that because they're not selling agents they're not it's not about transactions it's not about how much value I've sold it's not about how quickly it's got to be about the right property you know so forget everything else it's, it's not about any of that. You know, you'd never get a financial planner going, hey, I've done X millions of dollars of funds this year and I've churned 523 clients and, and I'm going to be acknowledged in the industry for that, which is what they do in sales. You know, it's the top performing agents. But now they're trying to transition that into advocates without understanding that we are not transactional. You should not measure advocates on how many transactions and the dollar value of what you've done. They are sales metrics they're not buyer advocacy metrics. So the industry doesn't even get it. You know, industry associations don't get it. Um, but yeah, I guess at the end of the day, you just have to really be buyer beware, do all the research and investigations, get years worth of case studies, look at Google reviews, ask for genuine experience. Um, I see people all the time, you know, I've obviously got franchises that I'm distributing around the country and people come to me and go, yeah, I bought 10 properties. Um, I've, um, I know what I'm doing. I've bought my own home. I'm like, okay, well, what are the five questions you'd ask a selling agent under these circumstances? All right, well, in this situation, how would you handle that? So I ask them four or five questions. They're totally speechless. And I'm like, they're all the reasons you shouldn't be an advocate because you've got no idea what you're doing. So, you know, thanks for your inquiry. But when you get some experience, go learn to be a selling agent for a year, go get mentored. When you've done that and you've dealt with the reality of the industry and you realise it's not easy money, and you can't just churn and burn, then come back and have a chat to me. But, you know, it's these people, unfortunately, who are overconfident in their own ability because they also assume that they've bought 10 properties and they've done it well. Or they might have made a little bit of money, but how much money have they left on the table that they didn't make because they didn't know what they were doing? So they're the ones that you have to be really scary of. Anyone who's saying, I've done this 10 times, I'm a legend, you should trust me, because it doesn't quantify anything other than they've signed 10 contracts to buy property doesn't mean they've done it well. I can vouch for that because like I've, oh, oh, how many, I've bought four, one, two, three, four, five, six properties in my life. I've sold three and I've rented probably about 10 times, maybe longer. I've got, I've, I've got investment properties, both Airbnb and long-term. Um, and I don't know everything. And I'm in the real estate industry, for, you know, but in a different mm. realm. And, yeah, it's it's a very niche specialty to be a buyer's advocate. And I think this is one thing that is really important to find in your buyer's advocate. You need to find someone who's prepared to protect you as a buyer. Yeah, absolutely, because that's our job above everything else. We're protecting clients from making a mistake mm. and then we're going with them on the journey of buying 
again, whether it's investing or home buying, they're different. One's more emotional than the other, but people can still be emotional and make emotional decisions with investment properties. And you've got to have the capacity to communicate at a high level. You've got to have the emotional intelligence. You've got to understand how to direct and guide them. Um, You know, there are kindergarten advocates out there who don't know what they're doing and they just want to get a client. They'll buy anything at any price and they discount their service and you know, they don't even know if they're doing it properly and their clients don't know because their clients haven't engaged with anyone before. And a lot of them aren't happy and, and a lot of them don't deliver value. And a lot of them, oh my God, they're lazy. They'll just sit there and buy a property in a regional area that they've never looked at, never inspected, but they're churning and doing a deal going, hey, this is fun. I can sit at my desk, make all this money for nothing. And um, yeah, they actually think they're not accountable, but They'll get bitten. Trust me, there are a lot of people that will be sued. So this is where, you know, consumers need to say, well, if you're going to buy a property for me regionally, are you going to be inspecting it? Who's going to be doing that? Are you outsourcing that to a third party? Who's that third party? Where's the liability that if something happens between, you know, me engaging you and you engaging them? Well, quite frankly, it's with the advocate. But, you know, consumers really need to ask that question. What are you going to do to protect me? Give me, demonstrate examples of how you do that. The other, I guess, issue that a great buyer's advocate should be able to do is do a full research on the history of the area, you know, be able to forecast the projected value based on historic results of the property and the suburb and the the demographic that's within the area and know all those really integral um, elements that will contribute to why this is an asset, not a liability. Yeah, but you also have to be very careful. If anyone's forecasting growth, I would run a mile. Because I say to clients, I don't project, I don't forecast. Here's all the evidence to support why all of these factors together should give you the opportunity to perform well. But I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not putting my name to that. So anyone who's giving people projections and forecasts, they're all just numbers on a spreadsheet and they're rubbish anyway. And there's no guarantee of them coming to, to the fore. But if you're dealing with someone who's using that kind of data to con- convince you to buy a property, quite frankly, they're probably not a buyer's advocate. They're a property spruker. They're working for a developer. They're a selling agent. Um, there are people out there who lie about the fact that they're a buyer's agent. They, pay, they get you to pay a, a management fee. It's not an advocacy fee, it's a management fee. You think you're getting independent advice, but you're actually not. But they're basically conditioning you to go down the path of selling the stock they've got on their list that they want to sell you rather than is it right to buy. So consumers still have to be very wary and understand, and I wrote about this in my book, Property Prosperity, about the types of smoke and mirrors out there in the market, whether they're membership clubs, property clubs, property spruikers, um, you know, people who are like, hey, I'm going to buy this development and renovate it for you and you can all buy a property from me, but I'm going to charge you a buyer's agent fee. I don't know. Anyway, even though I'm selling it to you, like all this sort, there's all sorts of stuff out there in the market that just confuses people. And the term buyer's agent is being a bit bastardized by the sales industry as well, because some of them are now calling their staff buyer managers or buyer agents and there are the argument is that they're the team that work with buyers when the selling agent is selling a property so there's a lot of confusion and misrepresentation and plenty of different ways to skin a cat um but yeah be very careful about this forecasting but absolutely you want independent evidence around why that suburb you want independent evidence around why that property you want um guidance around why that price and yeah, anyone who, who does any forecasting, just be very, very careful. 
I wouldn't be buying from them or through them. So, for instance, if I was a buyer and I wanted to buy something in Baldwin, for instance, and, you know, because I wanted to send my kids to Baldwin High School because that's very prestigious, um, the criteria would be I need to be in the zone. Qualifying the property would be I need, you know, four bedrooms, I need three bathrooms, I need, you know, two separate living zones and I want a double garage. But then if that buyer's advocate says, look, I found this great property, it's just outside the zone, but because it's the closest school as the crow flies, you might be able to get into it. As a buyer, should you accept that kind of advice? Well, I think at the end of the day, it's up to the buyer to decide if they want to take that information and make an informed decision. And it may or may not be the right one for them. Mm. <clears throat> but the other alternative is, you know, when we when I work with clients and, and in our team, you know, we start with a wish list and then there's reality. Mm. And the skill of the advocate will help take a client from wish list to reality. And it's the journey that educates the client along the way. And it's through that journey that you give them options. And then you might have to pivot and redirect or look at alternatives and that's quite common. You know, you can start with a brief here and end up there, but you still have a happy client. Yeah. So if they absolutely must have that zone and they don't have the budget for it, then they've got to look at where else can they be flexible to ensure they get in there. You know, do they change the property type? Do they change the size? Do they increase their budget? Um, if moving to a neighbouring suburb isn't going to work, well, then maybe they shouldn't because if for some reason that zone retracts, then they're totally, you know up the creek without a paddle. So any piece of advice that an advocate gives you will have a level of risk associated with it and clients need to understand that and base their decision on that and also take responsibility. You know, if they were had a suggestion put in front of them, they need to ask and understand the implications before they agree. Fair enough. So how does a buyer's advocate um, help buyers support them emotionally through the process. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. You almost have to take a counselling approach and this is why not everyone's suited to it. Just because you want to be an advocate because, you know, you like property and you like design and you've worked in construction doesn't mean you're going to be any good at it because if you don't have that emotional intelligence to know how to guide a client, particularly when you're dealing with someone who's anxious or emotional or stressed or they've made decisions in the past, then you're going to fail them, you know. I'd like to be an astronaut but what are my chances of doing it? Again, because of the profile of a, an advocate being very different to a selling agent, not many people are necessarily going to do it and do it very well. And what you'll notice are a lot of very successful independent women in advocacy who do extremely well because we generally have a greater capacity to communicate and a greater level of emotional intelligence. Or the men that do well have got good emotional intelligence. You know, so um, it's understanding the questions that you need to ask to take the client where they need to be to get the outcome and feel safe and comfortable to do it. And if you don't have the ability to do it, you shouldn't be an advocate, in my opinion. This is a, a testy question. Do some buyers advocates get kickbacks from third parties? Well, generally, they shouldn't. You know, no one should get a kickback from anyone. And I was talking before about people who pretend they're buyers agents, but they're really property spruikers. And they get paid a marketing fee in internal brackets from the developer when they buy the property. And that's clearly a selling agent, yeah? So those kind of kickbacks and things from, uh, from third parties identifies if they're a selling agent or a generally independent advocate. Um, these firms who charge the so-called marketing fee, but they still get a marketing fee from the developer, 
means, again, they're a selling agent. Some of them, instead of saying it's a sales commission, they'll try and pitch it as a marketing fee. But at the end of the day, they're a property spreaker. They do everything possible to not admit that they're flogging property. Um, so you just need to ask who you're working with. Are you getting any um, referral fees or anything like that? And are you paying any referral fees? I mean, it may be that um, some advocates choose to pay someone a referral fee um, and Interestingly enough, a lot of the newbie advocates that are running around are willing to pay significant fees to people like sales agents. And those sales agents are happy to get the money and the fee, but they're probably referring to someone who's not good at their job if they can't get business other than relying on selling agents handing it to them for an expensive price. I get that. So after the break, we're going to be talking more with Miriam about the seven costly mistakes home buyers and investors make. So you're listening to Real Estate, right? I'm Sue Langada and we are talking to award-winning buyer's advocate Miriam Sankula from Property Mavens about fake buyer's advocates. So Miriam, tell us what the seven costly mistakes home buyers make. Yeah, so um, there are seven of them. Number one is not thinking ahead. So they're going and they start looking at property, but they don't understand their family's current and future needs. And it's really critical to home buying success to actually take a five to 10 year plan. Otherwise, they might find themselves buying a property and then in two or three years having to sell and buy another one. And you've got your stamp duty, your selling costs, your buying costs. So that's a pretty, um, pretty big one. Um, trusting the selling agent. I know selling agents aren't going to like this, but they're there to extract as much information from you as possible to use against you when it comes to buying that property in terms of getting the best price for their vendor. And hey, that's their job. So it's really important that they understand and they know that the person they're liaising with is on the side of the vendor, not the buyer. And it doesn't mean they've got your best interest at heart. Um, So just don't be naive that they're not there to do their job. Uh, And rightfully so, that is their job. (laughs) Uh, So then mistake number three, not having a buying plan. So it's kind of like buying a property without a strategy. You know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So you just need to understand um, what your buying plan is, what your lifestyle objectives are, what your 10-year plan is, what are your timeframes. If you've been searching for a long time and you're missing out, then do you need to modify your plan and, and modify your wish list? Um, how long are you going to live in this property? You know, is this your dream home or is this your stepping stone up to your next one? Um, then the next mistake is they don't engage a full team of experts. Now, that includes potentially a buyer's agent and obviously not a fake one. Yeah. <laughs> um, they want to be dealing with a mortgage broker because mortgage brokers have access to hundreds of um, lending products and dozens and dozens of lenders. Whereas when you go directly to your bank, they're only going to show you what they want to show you because that's all they're willing to, to sell you, for want of a better word. And it may not be the best product for you or the best interest rate. So you're always better off getting a, a highly qualified mortgage broker. And if they are going to help you with investing, you want an investment specialist mortgage broker. Um, you need a conveyancer and you want them to review any kind of contracts before you sign a contract, put an offer in, attend an auction. Because um, it's always too late after the event, particularly if you bought at auction, it's unconditional and, you know, bad luck, too late. You always want to use a building and pest inspector. Um, I know it can get expensive if you keep missing out on property, but you don't want to gamble hundreds of thousands of dollars um, on not doing a a report worth a few hundred bucks. Because, you know, I've 
been to look at properties. I've done the reports. There have been $50,000 worth of problems. I've still gone and showed up at the auction just to see what happens, even though I'm not buying for my client. And there's some young, young couple there buying their first home who didn't spend the money and they don't know they've bought a property with 50 grand worth of issues. You know, big gamble. If you're not going to gamble 500K on the casino, don't gamble 500K on a property when you don't know what you're doing and you're not engaging the right team. And then, of course, insurance brokers. Um, so you need someone to insure the property. But also, more importantly now, there's a massive issue with underinsurance. You know, most people don't understand the complexity of insurance. And if you don't insure the house properly, let's say, for example, you've got a property worth a million dollars and you only insure it for 50% of the value, well, if it comes to claiming and you've only got $500,000 worth of cover, the insurance company will only pay you 50% of your policy because you've underinsured, which means you might only get 250 k now, it's a bit more complex than that, but that's a very simplistic approach, but that how, that's how that works. So always get the right team. They're there to protect you and help you minimise risk and maximise return. Um, mistake number five, not doing adequate research. So, you know, needing to understand the types of properties and how they perform. Things like location. Is it close to public transport? Can you walk there? Are there schools uh, nearby that you want to send your children to? What are the local amenities like? Is there medical facilities and hospitals? What, re- what recreation facilities are close by? So it's really just investing, investigating everything, you know, what infrastructure, roadworks, development is happening. Um, and it's quite overwhelming and people can obviously leave stuff out, um, which is maybe where a good advocate comes in. And then not understanding negotiation. So the fact of the matter is if you, even if you negotiate for a living in whatever your profession is, negotiating in real estate is really different because every agency has got different policies. Every agent works differently. They all have different levels of expertise. If you attend an auction, they all run their auctions differently and call them differently. So if you're not versed in all of that and you're trying to rely on yourself to do something that you've never done, which is highly emotional, well, quite frankly, people make bad decisions when they're emotional. And they make bad decisions when they don't know the questions to ask to get the information they need to develop a a bidding or a buying strategy. So that's a massive mistake. And as I said, becoming emotional, number seven, you just don't make good decisions. Agents have got all sorts of tricky methods to extract information from buyers that they use against them at a later stage. Um, So my attitude is never disclose your full budget, identify if the property is for you to live in or not. So don't identify that because they'll play on emotion. Um, Don't start walking in and talking about where you're going to place your furniture. (laughs) So just try and keep things a little bit closer to your chest. Um, And don't let the agent coach you on how to bid at the auction because they're only going to encourage you how to bid to drive the price up. So get an independent advocate to bid for you because they'll actually work strategically. Um, And don't buy at any price. We understand that missing out is frustrating. But look, I've spoken to people where they've chased a rising market. They're 100 grand out of pocket after six months. But if they had have engaged me six months ago and paid me however many thousands of dollars, let's just chuck a figure in there, 15 grand, you know, by now they'd have a property and there'd be um, $85,000 ahead in capital growth. So, again, people need to understand that if they're buying property on themselves, by themselves without help, they'll probably pay a price, but they just won't know it until it's too late. And it's usually a lot more expensive than engaging a good advocate. Yes, agree on that. Now, Miriam, tell us about the seven common mistakes that investors make. Absolutely. So these are actually all in my best-selling book, Property Prosperity. Um, you can download it off Kindle for like four ninety nine, and and um, it's a really easy three hour read. So investors not dissimilar. Um, some similarities, some differences, but certainly thinking free advice is good advice. And I've got forty pages where I talk about 
smoke and mirrors and all the different ways that people sell property and how consumers are manipulated and buy beware. So anyone could sign a contract and buy a property, but buying well is another thing. And, you know, people often buy property, they get free advice, which is actually sales advice. They sign a contract and then years later they've lost money on a property and they don't understand why because, of course, they were told it would be fabulous. So, um, again, just be very aware who you're dealing with and, and, and understanding that free advice isn't good advice, it's sales advice. Um, not understanding risk. I mean, property is an asset class. I have a financial planning background. I take that approach to buying property. I always um, try and understand a client's risk profile because whatever they buy, they need to sleep at night. And there is not a one-size-fits-all um, process when it comes to real estate and anyone that you're dealing with whether they're a selling agent a property spook or a buyer's agent who just keeps trying to shove you in one aspect or they're trying to get you to buy off anything off the plan I'd run a mile Um, because the highest riskiest thing one of the riskiest things you can ever do is buy off the plan like developing because you're buying a concept it may or may not work it may or may not fall over they may or may not cancel a contract on you it may be worth less than when you settle on it than it was when you signed the contract. So just watch out for anyone doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So risk is really important. And again, having a documented plan, knowing what your objective is, knowing what your yield is that you're trying to achieve, knowing what your strategy and profile is. So just making sure that, um, you know, you've, you understand what you're buying, capital growth, cash flow, development, balance of the two, and you're moving forward accordingly. Um, Again, engaging that team of experts, as I said, so you want your mortgage broker, you want your um, investment qualified buyer's advocate or someone who's associated with a firm where they've been trained in that area. Uh, You want your mortgage broker, your solicitor, your building and pest inspectors, your insurance broker, your property manager. Don't ever manage your own property. Legislation is so complex nowadays in property management. I've got multiple properties. I wouldn't dream of doing it myself. You're just asking for trouble. And then get a quantity surveyor to do a depreciation report. And as I said, make sure you're you're insuring the property. Um, You're not under-insuring the property as well. So that's your team of experts. Um, Doing... Not doing adequate research. So people think that searching realestate.com is research. It's not. It's just searching. You know, searching, you need to take into account growth drivers. You need to take into account macroeconomic factors um, and microeconomic factors. Uh, You need to look at local amenity. You need to understand... Uh, the type of property you're buying, where you're buying, you know, you're buying house and land, you're buying um, established property, you're buying an apartment, a townhouse, a house, what's the difference between the two, what what land value is it? And it's highly, highly complex and most people make mistakes because they don't know what they're doing and they, um, yeah, they lose money. I was going to say, um, and they forget about land tax because that land component can all of a sudden add another few thousand dollars to your annual bill. Absolutely. And also getting, you know, part of the right team is actually seeing your accountant to get your structuring advice before you go and spend the money. So it could be in your name, it could be a family trust, it could be a company, it could be a self-managed super fund. But you do all of that before you put your name on a contract because that's part of your mitigation when it comes to tax, um, reducing your tax as well. Um, and then not understanding the, the rules in terms of how real estate works. So obviously properties must be advertised um, Property advertising must not be misleading or deceptive. It's illegal for a real estate agent to misrepresent a property in any way when advertising, marketing or marketing a property for sale, whether that's verbally in writing or in photographs. So just understanding 
what agents can and can't do. Underquoting sadly still goes on. Sometimes in recent years, um, certainly in recent 12 months, there's a bit of overquoting going on because vendors are setting prices and the properties aren't even worth it. So people need to really understand how to price property. Um, but it's always making sure that the contract uh, of sale is reviewed before they place an offer and they always want to include a clause for building and pest inspections or at least do that before an auction. So they really need to understand legally how things work, cooling off periods, all of that, because they're all different in every state, how offers are made are all different in every state. And so it's really important to, to either know that and get a good understanding of yourself or work with an advocate. And then number seven is they don't review their portfolio. They kind of think it's set and forget. And property's not setting set and forget. You do want to review it annually. And it's because things can happen in um, local conditions. So, you know, you might find that you've bought an area and then suddenly there's a development that's been approved and coming up and it's going to impact the value of your property. Um, so you really need to keep an eye on what's going on. And part of that is knowing where to buy and where to buy and where not to buy to start with. But if inadvertently you've made a mistake and you don't know, keeping an eye on what's going on in your local area is really important. Um, falling in love with the property can make it harder for you to cut your losses and sell in the event that the property is no longer performing or unlikely to continue to do so over the longer term. So I've done portfolio reviews for clients who've bought badly, they've lost money, but they've wanted to hang on to it because I couldn't bear realising the loss. And all they do is hold on to an asset that's going to continue to decline where they'll get less and less money eventually when they sell it. So it's a tough lesson to learn, you know, sometimes you've got to bite the bullet, but and, you know, the beauty of a loss is that it's actually, as an investment property, it is a loss. It's a taxation loss. So you can actually claim that loss. Not that I'm an accountant and I'm not giving it financial advice. So the idea of a capital loss on property is that it's there to be offset against future capital gain on property. Mm. Yeah. So it's not a tax deduction. Yeah. And it's only if you continue to invest and make a gain that you then realise down the track. But it needs to be the same entity or the same name. And again, I'm not an accountant. Don't take my advice. But, you know, you don't want to make a loss in the first place. But hanging on to a bad property for the sake of not realising that loss is a worse decision than taking the loss, working with an investment expert, starting again, freeing up that borrowing capacity, and then using that borrowing capacity to make a smarter decision. Because when you buy a high-performing property that outperforms the market, it's a matter of time before that loss is break-even and then you'll be in blue sky but you've got to work with the right people. And I've even had people come back to me where they, you know, after six, seven years going, oh, God, we should have engaged you. We went with them and we haven't made any money on our property. And, you know, they just bought us an apartment and it's done nothing. And and I've had multiple people come to me having worked with at least four different competitors where they've all given me feedback that's been a little bit alarming and they've wanted me to kind of help them fix it. Um, Because, again, it's complex. You know, not everyone's got... Um, investing qualifications and not everyone has the in-depth know-how to do the role, give the right advice. And you know what? There's there's also, this sounds a bit odd, but there's also intuition. Like I work logically, I work numerically, but if I don't have a good feeling about something, I'm more than happy to walk away because I know my intuition is sharp and I know if I've got doubts, then we just move on you know, but there may not be logical reason, but you know, hey, so what? That's my intuition. Yeah. yeah so um, as I said, review your portfolio annually. It's really important to keep up with what's going on in the local market. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Miriam, for coming on to Real Estate Right this 
episode. Now, how can our listeners get in contact with you if you're in the market to buy? Absolutely. So on our website, propertymavens, M-A-V-E-N-S for Sam, .com.au, we have a free consultation form. We're obviously operating in a number of different states. All of the mavens have been trained according to obviously our methodology um, and our investment expertise. So yeah, just log on, click the link, fill in the little free consultation request and we'll be in touch. Or you can give us a call, um, uh, 03 <laughs> But, you know, you can follow us on LinkedIn. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow Property Mavens on Facebook as well. Uh, but, yeah, by all means, click the free consult. We'd uh, be happy to help you and have a chat. And we do the vendor advocacy as well. So it's where we protect um, sellers, helping them to pick the right agent with the right attributes and the right skill set with the right marketing budget for the right fee and there's no extra cost to help um, vendors do that. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Miriam. And we might even give away, we've got one of these, um, one of your books, Property Prosperity, in, uh, to one lucky real estate right listener through our social, oh, we've got five, one for every day. through Yeah, through our social media pages. Check out our social media over the next week and um, we'll give them away. And can I say too on the website, we've got a resources page. So there's plenty of webinars with some great educational topics there. Um, you know, if they, people want to buy the book online, they can do it there as well. So um, there's plenty of blogs that are really quite informative and we've got newsletters that go back years and years. So have a look around the website and um, take advantage of all the resources. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Miriam. Thank you. It's been really wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, next week, we have Megan Taylor and Alicia Leckie from Longview Real Estate to talk to us about the Residential Tenancy Act. Um, and its compliancy laws. We've had two years of the Act now and so now we need to know what we need to do for the next two years. They will give us an update on how they are going, how the compliance laws have impacted the uh, real estate industry and what is new, so don't miss it. Real Estate Right is brought to you by Real Copyright, one of Melbourne's leading real estate copywriting services. This podcast is produced and written by me, Sue Langada, with the help of our social media expert, Jade Bomanis. We would like to thank Podbean for distributing this podcast, Zoom for the recording, Premium Beat for our theme music, and Francis Morello for our introduction. We would love for you to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or on our website, realestatewrite.com.au. Thank you for listening to Real Estate Right. It's where buyers, sellers, renters and investors get their real estate right. Right.